Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we discuss an influential piece of New Testament scholarship. I'm Laura Robinson. I'm Ian Mills. And we have PhDs in New Testament studies from Duke University. Today we're discussing the Gnostic Gospels by Elaine Pagels, first published in 1979. Elaine Pagels is a professor of religious studies at Princeton University, and she is a scholar who has spent most of her career working on the Nag Hammadi finds and early Gnosticism. Now, the so-called Nag Hammadi Library is one of the most significant archaeological discoveries for the study of early Christianity, probably second only to the Dead Sea Scrolls. In 1945, a series of 13 codices, 13 books, came to light through a complicated history that you can read about in Pagel's book. The story was later told that two brothers, while searching for a kind of fertilizer near some well-known monastic tombs, discovered a jar. Uh, They were afraid to break it open because they feared a jinn might lie within, but hoping to find treasure instead, smashed it and found therein a bunch of old books. They then bring these home, and as these stories tend to go, reportedly their mother burned a bunch of them. Then the tale continues that they went to avenge their father's murder and ate the heart of the victim. All of this, for the record, is reported in Pagels as sort of the received story of how these codices were discovered. Subsequently, a number of scholars including Nicola Dunsey-Lewis and Mark Goodacre, have problematized this story and shown that probably this is more fiction than fact. But in any case, these 13 volumes came to light, and contained therein were more than 50 separate early Christian treatises, texts that you might have heard of like the Gospel of Thomas, or the Apocryphon of John, or the Dialogue of the Savior, as well as lots of texts that most people have never read, like Eugnostus the Blessed, or one of my favorites, The Teachings of Sylvanus. These texts gave us an insight into a variety of early Christian movements in their own words, as opposed to just relying on polemical characterizations of them from their opponents. What Pales does with these texts is, and again, she is writing a popular level introduction to this, is she takes these texts and she uses them to contrast them with the writing of the proto-Orthodox Christian church, and to look at the ways in which the developing theologies of the Gnostic movement differ in a lot of ways from the theology theologies of the proto-Orthodox movement. Depends how fine of gradations we want to draw. But in general, her argument is that These movements differ in large part over the ways they um, address political and social concerns, right? Like, what is the role of women in the church? What is the role of hierarchy in the church? What is the role of uh, Jesus' ability to confer authority to individual human agents? Is there an institution or a structure? Uh, Is charismatic power and prophecy a thing? These socio and political questions are at the heart of how these two movements end up diverging. Uh, And specifically why the proto-Orthodox movement sees the Gnostic movement as being so heretical and harmful. Pagels is going to argue that we can see in Gnostic theology and whatever the opposite of that is, something like proto-Orthodox theology, beliefs and ideas Mm -hmm. that are directly correlated with practices and power structures, political and social relationships 
in their actual movements. So she's going to draw connections between what sounds like pretty esoteric theological controversies and actual on-the-ground practical practices that we see in the two competing movements. You might have heard lay Christians or pastors say before that the church has gotten more divided over time. That when we look back at Acts, we see that the church is fully united and there is just one church and everyone worships together. And now we've all splintered off into our different denominations and our different different forms of churches. And now we're all at odds with each other, right? Pagels identifies this correctly as a myth and says that in history, actually, there have always been divisions in the church. It, is, it isn't actually the case that there used to be one Christian movement and now there are many. That from the, the earliest days of Christianity, there were these other groups that were eventually subsumed under the label of heretical, right? But they were out there and they are part of Christian history. In fact, Pagels makes the point that Christianity today, in all of its diversity, is probably more theologically united than the varieties of Christianity that existed in the second century. Uh, that the, div the difference between different kinds of Christianity has gotten smaller and smaller over the course of history. Now, we need to do a disclaimer early on in this episode. This is a very early piece of scholarship on what we now think of as the movement of Gnosticism. And we have been speaking and will continue to speak, because Pagels does, of Gnosticism as a singular movement, as a singular version of Christianity. Those of you who've listened to our previous episodes, be it our Walter Bauer episode, or in particular, episode 29, Michael Williams' Rethinking Gnosticism, will know that this is a problematic way to think about Gnosticism. Yeah. There was no Church of the Gnostics. Rather, Gnosticism is a heresiological label. It's a title that Irenaeus puts on all variety of Christians that he doesn't like. And these Christians, as Pagels herself acknowledges, don't always get along and have a variety of perspectives. They don't understand themselves as a single united movement. Pagels is going to be talking about the commonalities where she finds them between these different texts and talking about general tendencies within these Gnostic texts. But even with that caveat, she does tend to create one composite picture of a Gnostic Christianity that may differ or hold loosely to particular formulations, but exists as a coherent movement. And if you go back and listen to our Williams episode, I think you'll see good reasons to think that that's not a very good way to talk about the, the several different movements that together get labeled Gnosticism. So this is this is sort of the central issue, right? Is it, This is not necessarily a useful, helpful way to think about early Christian history, but we are going to, you know, we're, we're going to use the text we have in front of us because this is an earlier form of scholarship on it. We should also say that, like, you know, even though we don't quite do scholarship this way anymore, this is an incredibly influential piece of scholarship. And of course, this book is a significant seller in the American public. So the odds that you know somebody who's read this book are actually not insignificant. This is actually a pretty wide-ranging, influential text. So after introducing the Nagamati Corpus and sort of the history of scholarship and Gnosticism, Pagel starts off her original argument by arguing that different conceptions of the resurrection provide different grounds for theological authority between the two different movements. For what she calls the Orthodox Christians, the resurrection was a historical event, and she makes the argument that the Book of Acts 
grounds theological authority in the title of apostle and makes a condition for being an apostle being a witness to the particular event of Jesus' resurrection. So she's thinking of Acts 1, the appointing of Matthias, where it becomes a condition of being an apostle that they've witnessed the life and resurrection of Jesus. The same view, by the way, is sort of reflected in mirror form in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul seems to be responding to the same account of apostolicity. And then this develops, according to Pagels, in Irenaeus's conception of apostolic succession, that authority is passed down from the first apostles to their students in unbroken succession all the way back to those who first saw Jesus. So that's where the authority of the church comes from. That's where we have our guarantee of theological truth. As opposed to Gnostic texts, which are admittedly more complex, but the important thing for Pagels is that Gnostic texts, whether they believe the resurrection actually happened, was merely a vision, happened physically but not spiritually, or otherwise, and there's a wide variety of Gnostic, quote-unquote, accounts of the resurrection, that the importance of this event is figuring or symbolizing something that is going to happen to each one of us individually. And it is by recognizing this light within, it is by dying to our own flesh or crucifying our own flesh or experiencing the resurrection for ourselves and sometimes even becoming Christ's ourselves that we find theological truth. So for the Gnostic, it isn't this hierarchy, it isn't the succession that goes back to a historical event. It is rather something that each one of us does and finds and discovers within and for ourselves. It's worth saying that there are some binaries that are used to set up this chapter that actually are not as complex as the sources themselves are. For instance, Pagels plays off the idea that some people hold to like a literal resurrection and some hold to a figurative resurrection. Or that like the resurrection happened in history or that it happens to us individually. And the reality is, there's no clear split down the middle. I don't even know why the word literal is useful here, right? I think it's useful because the way a popular audience will think about it is, oh, you know, not everyone believes that Jesus just, like, was resurrected actually. It was just, like, a thing that was significant and important that his spirit lived on. But that's, that's not really what anybody in the ancient world is saying, right? That, like, the words of Jesus just lived on and that was a kind of resurrection. That's not really present in any of these texts, right? For one thing, you know, the language of resurrection in the proto-Orthodox movement is itself complicated. You know, we have this language of the resurrection of the flesh, but even proto-Orthodox writers don't mean that the same body that Jesus had when he died literally got back up and was like fully continuous with what came before. You know, Paul has this idea of the spiritual body and the glorified body that's changed, right? And so I, I actually think what you have more is the Gnostics are open to this idea that Jesus' resurrection didn't involve his flesh in any capacity. But again, that's not the same thing as his resurrection being like a symbolic way of describing something, right? They still think the resurrection actually happened. Just the thing that got resurrected was Jesus' essential part, his spirit. I, I don't quite think this binary that's set up at the beginning is helpful. The inverse of that is true as well, because of course... 
the resurrection of Jesus is figurative for Orthodox Christians also, right? Not only is it a historical event, but it's also something that individually Christians are expected to participate in quite explicitly. And we are buried with him, and we find Orthodox texts describing us as resurrected with him in this life as well. So there really is something to what she's saying. There really is a case to be made for a variety of Gnostic texts really emphasizing the individuality of the experience of the resurrection, and that is a grounds for authority. But at the same time, I think it's really easy to understand this as two ways of placing emphasis and two lines of interpretation of a common set of Pauline and early Christian yeah. Jesus traditions. Yeah. The thing that Pagels wants to use this argument towards is the way you frame Jesus's resurrection shifts your understanding of authority in the church, right? So if apostolic authority is a thing you can only get during the 40 days after Jesus's resurrection before the ascension, where he appeared to people and gave them authority, and then he left, the window of time where you can become an authority in Christianity is very short. If you weren't following Jesus on earth during his life and you weren't there during those 40 days, you don't have access to this kind of authority unless one of the apostles passes it down to you, right? As opposed to Gnosticism, where there's a lot more comfort on the idea that the resurrected Jesus can continuously appear... But because this is sort of a replicatable event, there's a much wider range of people who can become authorities in Gnosticism. And this translates directly into Pagel's next chapter, in which she portrays Gnosticism as widely egalitarian, sort of democratic in a traditional sense of the term, as opposed to the strictly authoritarian and hierarchical Orthodox movement. And the title of this chapter is one god, one bishop, which is something taken from First Clement and Ignatius. First Clement, we've done an episode on this, is a very early letter in which the author makes an argument to the church in Corinth that they should reinstate their bishop, who they seem to have let go. And he makes this argument that they have one god, so they should have one bishop and respect him and revere him. The implication from Pagels is this has something to do with Gnosticism, which is, for the record, not at all clear from the letter of First Clement. Um, in fact, I don't think any modern scholars think Clement is addressing or perhaps even aware of Gnosticism. Slightly better evidence for her thesis is Ignatius, who does occasionally seem to engage with thinkers who sound a little more like Gnosticism, thinkers who sort of downplay the embodiment of Jesus, perhaps. And Again, I think Pagels is right, going back to that previous chapter, that there is a sort of egalitarianism in Gnostic literature. But this seems to me to come from that earlier epistemic point, that point about sources of authority. And Pagels is right to note that there are things in Gnostic texts that do seem to indicate this was a relatively egalitarian movement. But it's not so clear to me that this grows out of a rejection of monotheism. In fact, most Gnostic texts seem to also be radically monotheistic. The title and the opening half of this chapter seems to be arguing that it is from a rejection of monotheism. But the Gnostics just think that the Christian hierarchy, the bishops and the priests and the, the people we call Orthodox, are worshipping a being that is not the one God. They're worshipping some 
demiurge, some lesser being, some divine mistake. What the Gnostics are teaching is how to worship the one true real God. It isn't really a rejection of monotheism as it is just the point we already made, this point about the sources of authority and this point about the human condition, that, that humans contain within them pieces of the divine. And this, I think, makes better sense of what Pagels is observing than early Christian monotheism. There is a true God who is the revealer and the enlightener, and then there is a there is an evil God, there's a negative God, there's a demiurge who is resisted, right? It's obviously not the way uh, the proto-Orthodox movement does monotheism, but it's not not monotheism. It's simply not true that proto-Orthodox Christians have a very simplistic monotheism, right? They believe in a sort of diversity within the single Godhead, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they have an evil figure, a supernatural evil figure that's the font of evil, Satan. Likewise, the Gnostics have a complex singular divinity, right? They've got these emanations, these expressions of God that create this plurality that explain the different parts and govern the different parts of the universe. Likewise, they have a demiurge, which is the source of evil, just like the Satan. Uh, both of which, the Satan and the demiurge, are sort of lesser supernatural beings. And both, at least in general for Gnosticism, both Gnosticism and Proto-Orthodoxy, would claim that their complex vision of God is still belief in just one God. So I think we see a sort of parallelism here that both have complex monotheisms. What does seem to be true is that the Gnostics tend to have a more of a resistance to institutional authority, and this belief in individual divinity allows for the possibility that a range of charismatic teachers can show up, um, and specifically that they resist the proto-Orthodox authority structures. So this brings us to the conversation of God the Father and God the Mother, right? A big part of this idea of a range of authority figures, a range of charismatic leaders, and a range of ways of understanding the divinity, a big part of this for Pagels is this idea that this creates space for femininity and female divinity and female leadership in the church to enter in. That because there is a range of charismatic figures, that there's there's more space for women to participate and to become charismatic leaders in the Gnostic movement than there is through this much more limited patriarchal, hierarchical, proto-Orthodox space. And uh, another way that this is expressed, and maybe even is directly downstream from in the Orthodox movement, is that there is more tolerance of women leaders because there is more of an understanding of female divinity, right? That the Godhead... Um, has these dyads in it, right? Of like maleness and femaleness and mother and father and husband and wife. Because they have this understanding of God that includes these multiple persons of different genders, that this creates more space for women to be leaders. Her title for this chapter is God the Father, God the Mother. And she's going to be pointing again to, in this case, much more limited evidence for female leaders in Gnostic movements relative to proto-Orthodox movements. We're going to problematize that in a second and say, again, we have a parallelism of a recognition of the divine feminine in Gnosticism and a rejection of the divine feminine in proto-Orthodoxy corresponds to a rejection of female leaders in proto-Orthodoxy and an acceptance of them in Gnosticism. And while there is, again, some evidence for female leadership in Gnosticism, and there is in proto-Orthodoxy as well, we'll come back to that, but while there is some evidence for that, Again, this finds a perfectly coherent explanation 
in what we're representing as her first point in the sort of distribution of authority because of the nature of elect humankind as possessing that spark of divinity. The actual argument that divine female leads to female leaders and divine male leads to male leaders, I think can be problematized on basically every axis. The argument here, of course, is just that, you know, Christianity inherits this one male god from Judaism, and then everything comes downstream from that, that there's a patriarchal hierarchy that comes out of this, and that Gnosticism is set up in opposition to this. One of the big issues here is that the evidence for female leaders in Gnostic groups is actually extremely limited. One of the best pieces of evidence we do have for female Christian leaders who baptize and have teaching authority in our inner significant charismatic figures is the book of Paul and Thecla, which is a proto-Orthodox text, right? So this is, you know... This is already kind of complicating the narrative. We have this authoritative female teacher who is taking on priestly functions in this text, but this is a proto-Orthodox text. The Gnostics did not write this. Tertullian, who is a proto-Orthodox Christian writer who resists a lot of uh, of heretical groups, is a strong opponent of women in priestly roles, but the group he writes against that has female bishops and has female priests is actually another proto-Orthodox group. So it doesn't really seem to be the case that the Gnostics are known for having these big female leaders, but the proto-Orthodox aren't. She cites as her evidence three different groups. She says that the Marcionites had female leaders. She said that there was a female teacher among the Carpocratians named Marcelina, and the Montanists had prophetesses. A few problems. Marcion was not a Gnostic, and to my knowledge, there's no good evidence he had female leaders. There's plenty of evidence for Marcionite ecclesiastical leaders, and they're all male. Likewise, the Montanists aren't Gnostic, and they have two ecstatic female prophetesses whose revelations are mediated by a male This does not seem to me to be great evidence for female leadership in Gnosticism. We're left with this one traveling female teacher. And we have more than one example of traveling female leader teachers and leaders among the Proto-Orthodox, both within the New Testament canon and outside of it. So let's read a couple examples of Gnostic texts that do support her claim, which she provides in the Gnostic Gospels. My favorite is from the Gospel of Mary. Then Mary stood up and greeted them all, and said to her brethren, Do not weep and do not grieve, nor be irresolute, for his grace will be entirely with you and will protect you. But rather let us praise his greatness, for he has prepared us and made us into men. When Mary said this, she turned their hearts to the good, and they began to discuss the words of the Savior. Peter said to Mary, Sister, we know the Savior loved you more than the rest of women. Tell us the words of the Savior which you remember, which you know, but we do not, nor have we heard them. Mary answered and said, What is hidden from you, I will proclaim to you. And then a little further on, it continues, When Mary had said this, she fell silent, since it was to this point that the Savior had spoken with her. But Andrew answered and said to the brethren, Say what you want to say about what she has said. I at least do not believe that the Savior said this, for certainly these teachings are strange ideas. Peter answered and spoke concerning these things. He questioned them about the Savior. Did he really speak privately with a woman and not openly to us? Are we to turn and all listen to her? Did he prefer her to us? Then Mary wept and said to Peter, 
My brother, what do you think? Do you think that I have thought this up by myself in my own heart or that I am lying about the Savior? Levi answered and said to Peter, Peter, you have always been hot-tempered. Now I see that you are contending against the woman like the adversaries. But if the Savior made her worthy, who are you to reject her? Surely the Savior knows her very well. That is why he loved her more than us. Rather, let us be ashamed and put on the perfect man and separate as he commanded us and preach the gospel, not laying down any other rule or any law beyond what the Savior said. And when they heard this, they began to go forward and preach. Here we have, according to Pegels, and I think quite plausibly, Peter standing in for the proto-Orthodox movement and Mary as the guarantor of special knowledge. And Peter is characterized by his opposition to a woman bringing this knowledge forward. And the conclusion of the text, once everybody reconciles, is that they should not lay down further rules, perhaps like not allowing women to be leaders. That's one way to read this text. Do you have another way to read this text? Yeah. It's also possible to read this as a separate apostolic succession origin story that these teachings really do go back to the teachings of the living Jesus passed down by Mary. But why haven't we received them? Well, because the apostles were sexist, right? Um, So it's a story that explains both the origin of Gnostic teaching with the apostles and its relative suppression, and then concludes with the claim that even the apostles ultimately decided to agree with Mary. And so now you, contemporary reader in, let's say, the third century, should agree with the apostles and accept the lost teaching of Mary, what's called the secret teaching of Mary. It's possible to read this not as an endorsement of all women all the time, but as an explanation for the origin and then disappearance or secretiveness of special knowledge. One thing I do want to draw attention to in this section is a little bit of uncritical anti-Judaism that does show up sometimes in New Testament scholarship that we just need to be aware of and be careful about. There's a few examples I want to go through in this. When Pagels is asking this question of why did the proto-Orthodox movement become sexist? Why did it become patriarchal? One thing she does is she compares it to the earliest days of the Jesus movement where Jesus is talking to women, right? And he does have female teachers and followers around him. And Paul has female prophets, right? And Paul has female letter carriers who would be like reading and teaching his, his message, right? So it seems like this movement goes from being very inclusive of of women to being very restrictive of them. On that point, see our Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza episode, episode three, for a better treatment. And Pagels, when she's taking on this question of how does this movement be friendly towards women and inclusive of women to being very sexist, she starts with this claim that Jesus flouted Jewish tradition by talking to women, right? And by having women around him. And um, that's not really the case as we as we talked about in our Fiorenza show that it's not really the case that Judaism was just significantly more sexist than other cultures around them and Jesus was reacting against the deep entrenched sexism of Judaism and then as the section goes along Pagels argues that the surrounding society around the Jewish world the uh the world of the Greeks and the Romans and the Egyptians were moving towards this less hierarchical, more egalitarian society where women had more rights. And then Christianity dramatically backlashes and pushes things the other direction and becomes extremely conservative. Part of the way she 
thinks of this is as Christianity specifically getting more Jewish. She talks about how uh, in the early days of Christianity, Christianity had mixed seating of uh, men and women at churches, but then by the second century, they start to sit apart, and she says that this is the synagogue custom, right, of having women and men sit apart. This is actually kind of anachronistic. It actually is not, there's not great records that indicate that in synagogues in the first and second centuries, men and women sat apart. But again, we have this narration that there's sort of this thread of Jewish sexism that is steering the Christian movement. And again, that's just, that's not a good characterization of first century Judaism. And the logic of her whole argument in this chapter kind of pushes her in that direction because Why is Christianity monotheist? Well, because Judaism was monotheist. And so if that's going to translate into masculine language for God, translates into sexism in practice, well then, it kind of makes sense for her whole argument that as Christianity is more Jewish, it's a little more sexist. She doesn't say it quite that way, but you see it showing up in little places that sort of note the alignment with Judaism when she's describing orthodox patriarchy. When Pagels is trying to explain this shift of how proto-orthodoxy moves from being inclusive of women to being hierarchical and gendered and sexist, she cites a few different authors who have had different explanations, right? So she she quotes Morton Smith, who argues that this was part of Christianity's move towards social respectability. As it moves from being a religion of the very poor to being a religion of the middle class, it adopts these more like conservative middle class values to appeal to Roman immigrants, right? But one of the theories that she does bring in, and one of the authors she cites, is this theory that a group of Hellenized Jews converted to Christianity and flooded the churches and suddenly... The churches had a bunch more Hellenized Jews in them, and they brought their sexism with them and made the church more sexist. And the person who she attributes this hypothesis to is a man called Johannes Leipold. The book that she's drawing from, she draws from this book a couple of times, is a book called Jesus and the Women that was published in 1921 in Germany. Johannes Leipold was a professor at Leipzig. Two years after this book, in 1921, The Jesus and the Women, he follows this up with an article called Was Jesus Jewish? In uh, 1939, he becomes a member of the Institute for Research into and Elimination of Jewish Influence in German Church Life. And if you've been listening to me read out these titles and read out these locations, you're probably hearing the years and starting to notice that this is a person with extensive ties to the Nazi party. Leipold was a an academic fellow at this institute that was established by the German Christian movement, which was this was the movement that was trying to wed national national socialism to specifically Lutheranism to sort of create this German state religion that was uh, useful for the goals of national socialism and to examine the ways in which Judaism was influencing Christianity so that they could get that out and get these influences out. Here's what I want to say about this. Leipold's books about Judaism and the role of Judaism in early Christianity should not be uncritically cited as a way to explain an ugly feature of Christianity, like it's sexism, right? Because Leipold has an agenda. Leipold is not trying to 
uh, you know, just uncritically explore this question of the origins of sexism in the church. He has a reason why he thinks it is associated with Judaism, or why it might be associated with Judaism, and that's because he ha- he is part of this group that is specifically attempting to see Christianity and Judaism as diametrically opposed because that is useful for the development of a national socialist religion. Pagels does not cite Leipold as the answer. She cites a number of scholars and leaves them to the reader. And to be clear, we do not think Pagels is anti-Semitic. We are not saying that no, 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 Pagels no. herself... No, absolutely not. That Pagels herself now or in 1979 held anti-Semitic views. This is not what we're saying. What we are saying is that we have seen here, as shows up elsewhere in scholarship, a uncritical reception of clearly anti-Semitic German early 20th century scholarship. None of this is new. This has all been going on for a while. This is just a drift that scholars of New Testament studies can have and we need to be aware of so we don't replicate anti-Semitism or anti-Judaism or anti-Judaic ideas in our scholarship. Okay, so this is a full book. We can't ever cover full books in sufficient detail on the podcast. There are three more chapters and we're going to go over their arguments in rapid succession. One of these chapters deals with the question of whether or not Jesus's body suffered on the cross or if there was some sort of um, essential untouched uh, part of his person that was not re- that was not affected by this. Right. This is an idea that shows up in a few Gnostic texts um, and even not explicitly Gnostic texts. The idea that Jesus transcended suffering or he himself did not suffer in his body. Pagels argues that this question, did Jesus suffer in his flesh or not? is important for groups who are trying to figure out how to respond to the phenomenon of Christian persecution, right? If you think that Jesus suffered in his flesh, then you might be more prone to thinking that the proper response to persecution is to make a good confession and be executed faithfully for your religion, or even seek that out. Just think of Ignatius salivating for martyrdom in his letter to the Romans. The tendency to long for execution is actually a real thing in proto-Orthodox Christianity, as opposed to in Gnosticism, where some people are much more comfortable with the idea that maybe you don't confess to being a Christian if somebody asks you, or but you definitely don't deliberately seek it out, or, you know, some people are going to be called upon to be martyred, but it's not really a, it's not a fate to be craved, right? It's not greater to be martyred than it is to live any other kind of Christian life, right? One of the texts she cites that seems pretty sympathetic, actually, is Heraclian, who says, Martyrdom is just something that some people get to do. And sure, that might be great, but what's more important is the conduct of your life. And he points out that some people might seek out martyrdom after living terrible lives as a way of getting a get-out-of-jail-free card. And so Heraclean and other Gnostics like the Basilideans don't downplay martyrdom, but they are critical of the way some proto-Orthodox Christians really valorize this and make this the one true way to be a Christian. We have a story of a proconsul of Asia, Arius Antoninus, who was confronted with a group of people who wanted to be martyrs, voluntary martyrs, who came to him and told him they were Christians. Uh, he sent a couple to be executed, and apparently he said to the rest, if you wish to die, you can use ropes or precipices, right? If you want to die so bad, 
just kill yourselves, right? And this is the tone that you see sometimes in early literature, the sense that some pagans found Christians to be kind of morbid and creepy about this, right? The sense that they were just a little too eager to die for their faith. It, it might make more sense that there would be this tendency in some groups to find some more justifications to think about maybe why this isn't the only way you want to be a Christian. More on that, go listen to our GEM St. Croix episode that Laura recorded with Ben Shepard. The last chapter of her book is called Gnosis, Self-Knowledge as Knowledge of God, where she draws connections between psychoanalysis and modern psychology uh, and the importance of self-knowledge as knowledge of God and knowledge of the deep mysteries of the universe claimed by Gnostics. So Pagel says that for Gnostics, the kingdom of God is a transformed consciousness. It's a new way of being aware of yourself and the divine within. You can hear resonances, I think, here with New Age movements, with Buddhism, and with psychoanalysis, as opposed to the proto-Orthodox claim, which she represents as being about the rest of the world, right? Either political realities, or heaven and hell, or something like that. To sum this up, you know, this is a... This is an earlier piece of scholarship that, that did introduce the Gnostic Gospels to a larger audience. And that's worth doing. And, and you know, if, if you've only read one book on the Gnostic Gospels, there's a chance this is it. And you would be introduced to some text you otherwise wouldn't be, right? So this is a really important text in the history of popular scholarship. This is important in, in the history of religious scholarship. We're not saying, like, don't read this book, it's old, it doesn't matter. No, this book has a very important place in history. There's definitely some stuff we would update. There's issues with seeing Gnosticism as a united group. There's some questions of the social uh, sciences and the study of religion about the role of polytheism and specifically having female divinities and the liberation of women like to what extent do these things actually have a one-to-one -one correspondence and you know of course the big one for for us on this show is how do we think about ancient judaism in a way that is historically accurate to that movement and also in a way that doesn't reproduce Christian anti-Semitism, which is a, or, or the assumptions of Christian anti-Semitism, which have a long, long history in Christian scholarship and are things that we need to be aware of can come into text, even if we're not noticing them. Totally agree. I think this is a really important book. It's a hugely influential book, and it's a book worth reading if you're interested in Gnosticism. I find her writing compelling, her argumentation compelling, and she's got some fascinating quotes she pulls out. We've pointed out a lot of our criticisms along the way, ways we want to problematize certain narratives, and of course, some problematic assumptions that she's working with. But this is an important piece of scholarship. And you should be aware of the work of Elaine Pagels if you're interested in the history of New Testament scholarship. She's an important scholar, and she did break ground on a lot of subjects that are really important to the way New Testament scholarship works today. So yeah. All right. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Ian.